Wapping Project is a, a vision which encapsulates new work, the commissioning of writers, poets, choreographers, composers, filmmakers, video makers and photographers. Hello and welcome to Pass Forward, the Wapping Project at 20, the new podcast series from the Wapping Project, exploring all its remarkable commissions, both in the Wapping Hydraulic Power Station, Wapping and internationally across the world. My name is Gareth Evans, I'm the host of this podcast series and it's a real pleasure in this particular edition to welcome the hugely acclaimed sculptor Richard Wilson. Richard, welcome to the Wapping Project podcast. Good afternoon. It's great to have you with us to talk about your extraordinary project uh, for the hydraulic power station in Wapping, Butterfly. Uh, this is uh, obviously a work that we will go into uh, in, in this conversation, but it also uh, kind of confirms, shall we say, your relationship with the River Thames, which has uh, been a, a stream, shall we say, running through your work. You've done a number of works uh, attached to the river, not least, of course, a little further uh, downstream, a slice of reality. Have you had a sense of the river uh, before we go into detail about butterfly, as being a kind of a conduit, a sort of uh, a sort of central idea in your work, in, in any real sense, I suppose what it is is I've always said that I'm a sculptor and I'm inspired by the ur urban environment, uh, and most particularly. Uh, if you're talking about urban environments, there is that neglected river, or it was a neglected river once upon a time. And that I found a lot of inspiration from. More specifically, way back in the 80s, uh, when I shared a boat with Ron Hazelden on the river, and also joined forces with Anne Bean and Paul Burwell with the Bo Gamelan Ensemble, and to get sort of collective uh, ideas together. We used to go up and down the River Thames on our boat, or my boat, and... Uh, one would be inspired by seeing welders doing stuff on the river bank or out on rigs out at the river, uh, in the middle of the river, uh, working on ships, listening to barges banging together, that sort of thing. So the Beau Gamelan was really the kind of um, the glue that sort of formed my thinking about ideas, forms and structures. Not strictly inspired by the river, but certainly there was a lot of vocabulary out there that was useful to me. That's tremendous. Yeah, I mean, there's a conversation for another time about the remarkable Bogamanan ensemble and that sense of, of, of the river as, as a location. Of course, you were, as you said, very fortunate to kind of catch it at a time when it was a much more dynamic agent in the life of the city, even if marginalised by the sort of mainstream of culture and society, when things were much more alive and sort of agitated on the river, particularly in Docklands and the East End. But of course, then you received this invitation from Jules Wright to uh, make your way to the hydraulic power station, a very early commission in the formal life of the Wapping project in that remarkable building and what was your first sense of, of, of the space of the turbine hall when, when, when you were shown it what, did you have a sense of the building before you were invited in uh, was it something on your radar as it were yeah it's interesting I did have a sense of the building but way before Jules got hold of it I actually went there once upon a time I mean the boat I was talking about that was moored on the River Thames was actually moored at Wapping and I think it was on a swim known as Metropolitan Wharf, where the warehouses were, where there were studios mm -hmm. and artists. And um, 
I remember needing to get getting some welding rods to do some work on the beach with the boat, and I nipped into the Wapping project space. There was a caretaker there looking after the property, and he actually had a workshop down in that space where I formed Butterfly. Uh-huh. He had a hacksaw down there, he had welding equipment, he was making gates for people locally. And so I knew it, I knew it as a rather forlorn, derelict space, walking past all the bits of machinery. Um, and it was only when I met Jules on a, on a, a social occasion somewhere. I'd, I'd heard of her. I was interested in what she was doing. I'd begun to hear about the Wapping Project space. I realised she was a bit of a maverick, and I quite like those people as directors of gallery spaces. They're not too precious about their spaces, and they tend to allow you to do all sorts of things you want to do without uh, having to... Well, with disregard to permissions, let's say. And she invited me to think about maybe coming up with a project for 2003. She she had a schedule, a program going, and there was a slot there, which uh, she was very keen for me to fill. So I went over and saw the space. Um, rather forlorn space, I have to say. I mean, it was classic. It wasn't the the white. It wasn't the white walls and the wooden, you know, parquet floor. <laughs> it was a concrete floor, and it was a white tiled. Uh, walls with great big uh, steel beams standing in the space, a lot of pipe work, very, very industrial, and in some ways uh, an unusual but uh, rewarding space because it was untouched. And in those spaces, mm-hmm. I'd, had a, I'd created a reputation having worked with Matt's gallery. I'd created a reputation for being able to sort of play with space and and actually making works were deemed then as site specific so it, mm-hmm. i found that quite inspiring i needed to make something very industrial in that space Well, that's tremendous. A great sense both of the building before uh, Jules took it on. And then, of course, as you say, that that meeting with her and the sense of the maverick possibility that she offered. Now, across the full range of your work, you're you're nothing if not ambitious. And you regularly play with ideas of perception and volume and and kind of turn our sense of what's expected upside down, quite literally, perhaps, whether it was uh, with 2050, the room of Sunpoil, or any of your other works that kind of take an idea and then and transform it. Now, these ideas are absolutely central to what you did with Butterfly. Once you'd got the space and you had a sense of a schedule and an exhibition timetable, how did you make the leap from a, a, a hydraulic power station turbine hall to bringing a light aircraft in? Yeah, interesting question, because strangely, it wasn't so much being inspired directly by the space. It was more about... I suppose I got to a stage in my career where I was beginning to question what it was I was really doing. And I began to recognize slightly um, 
something about myself which I'd seen in colleagues where there's a moment in your career where you realize you're actually playing quite safe and by that you start to repeat things you know your party pieces you know how you can get away with stuff and it's going to it's going to pass and you'll you know you'll get a tick for it mm-hmm. and what i want to do is somehow try and reinvent yet again what it was i did you know i, I always respected barry flanagan's work mm-hmm. uh, not so much him but his work because you could never predict what he was going to do next i mean the unfortunate thing about art nowadays is it's incredibly predictable by artists you know exactly the genre you know the signature mm-hmm. and i was trying to escape my signature in some way and it came through a fortuitous accident i'd we've all done this but i'd um washed a pair of jeans and uh, dried them and put them on and uh, put my hand in the pocket and pulled out a washed fiver. And of course that fiver was a screwed up piece of paper. And we're not trained to unfurl that piece of paper, but we, we, you know, I started to unpick it thinking, God, my God, this is a fiver. I've got to save this. Mm -hmm. And in the act of unfurling it, it, produced a statement in a sketchbook which I found in 2002 the year before I went in to do uh, the Wapping Project Space and it was simply take an object crush it and pull it out again and it was based on that experience of washing the fiver, <laughs> accidentally washing the fiver in a pair of jeans in a washing machine. I was thinking about what it, what was it I could do at the space where I could reinvent myself and do something rather complicated for myself Uh, which I couldn't predict its end result. I wanted to try and start a process which didn't seem to have uh, a verdict at the end. So take an object, crush it and pull it out again was my starting point. And to use the space of the hydraulic uh, pump station as uh, a void in which I could have something in there to pull out and use the building as an anchor point for the pulling process. and again, the notion of the darkness, something that could be spotlit or something that was glistening, something that was bright in the space, like a, you know, like a diamond in a drawer. You know, you, I wanted something there that would be quite a sexy thing that would attract attention. And I was also playing around at that particular time, or just starting to play around, with the idea that um, sculpture deals with mass and and structure very very beautifully but it's not capable of dealing with time in any way and so I started to include film as a basis of sort of filming process which put the the time aspect into the work so film and sculpture going together became a playful moment for a couple of years and really I suppose Butterfly was probably the second time I'd done that I'd had a show at the Barbican Arts Centre I've forgotten when that was now it might have been after actually, I might be getting my dates mixed up, but I worked with a couple of processes and a couple of films fixing with those and the idea of unfurling something uh, and somehow recording it became, or came to the fore for an idea, I wasn't quite sure it was going to be a plane, it was only later on when I realised I could put something in the space it didn't have to be floor bound and take an object that's not necessarily floor bound anyway take an aeroplane <laughs> and start moving that around in the space and unfurling it and making a film of it without any real knowledge of what the end result might be was where where it all started off 
Well, that's, you know, such an extraordinary and vivid and evocative uh, description of the origin of an artwork. And I mean, it, it's wonderful to think of that synchronicity and chance of unfurling, as you say, a, you know, a, a, a sodden, soaked, compacted five pound note from, from the pocket. And, and then realising, of course, that that could then in time become, as it did, uh, you know, a, a crushed, scrapped Cessna aircraft. And that is a, obviously it costs a little bit more than a five of the aircraft, I imagine. But <laughs> the um, but clearly the principle remains. Now, a lot of questions come from your your vivid description, Richard, not least the fact, of course, that you could suggest to Jules Wright that you know you wanted to you know to bring a light aircraft into the space. The space itself, of course, would would withstand you know such a, a process as you've described. But what I think is so interesting is this idea of turning sculpture explicitly into its own process and revealing that process, and actually not just the process of making the sculpture, but making sculpture itself a process. And so. With this idea of the film in place and the object, you then proceeded to do various things to this aircraft. And for those people who don't know the work, I just wonder if you could just take us briefly through the stages. Yeah, I mean, the process was to take a Cessna light aircraft. Um, I have to say it was gutted of all its uh, mechanical aspects. I bought it just as a bodywork. Several aeroplanes, actually, the wings, the back tail and the body, the fuselage, and then proceeded to bolt the whole thing together at the University of East London, where I was uh, uh, doing a two year residency in their sculpture workshops. And then working with the students from the University of East London Fine Art Department, we then stripped the aircraft of all its paintwork. So it became a polished, glistening silver aluminium shape or form. I then took that shape out into the car park, that that aeroplane, and hired four guys with four enormous forklift trucks to come and absolutely smash it up into a cube which proved to be quite a difficult process in uh in that an aircraft is designed not to crush when it lands <laughs> when it crashes uh it's about saving lives and so therefore they wanted to sort of design these things rather like origami you can fold bits of metal to make to reinforce it in all sorts of ways it took all day to crush this thing but we finally got it into a lump and then that lump was taken to the whopping project space and hung in the space for the private view as a mass of metal one couldn't really recognise. I mean, with a trained eye, you probably could, but most of the people in there were guessing at what the form was. And the idea was just simply, without any sort of real notion of planning or preparation, one was going to pull this thing out in some sort of way. I mean, we're not trained in any way to do this. It's a case of discovering ways in which this might be able to be done. So we did it hydraulically and with tethers where we anchored to the building and to the object and slowly pulled the piece of metal out over a period of four weeks. Whilst this process was taking place, this manual process of recovery of an object that once was, um, I had two cameras up in the ceiling doing a bird's eye view down on the workers, myself and uh, the object, unfurling itself on a time lapse. It was photographing one frame every five minutes for four weeks. And it was at the end of the four weeks I suddenly realised that mass and structure and form became time. Um, one can compress an object and pull it out again and one can take a film and can compress that one can take all the moments the many moments over the four weeks where the the cameras were clicking and put those together and then what one ended up was with a three-minute film 
uh, that wasn't planned. It just so happened through the edit. And then suddenly we got rid of the aeroplane and you had just the film. Um, so really over a four week period, if you came to the gallery, what you would have seen is the act of unfurling manual work where mm. the task was to sort of pull this thing out and slowly and surely it became recognizable as a Cessna light aircraft. But on the last sort of week and a half, you wouldn't have seen that process because overnight we created the screen. The aeroplane, having been unfurled, was then chopped down from its supports in the ceiling and it crashed to the floor like a swatted gnat. And the screen stood in front of it and you just saw these three and a half minutes of this this juddering, unfurling shape in, in sort of compressed time. Well, that, again, is an equally vivid description. Thank you very much indeed. And it raises, I guess, the further question of what exactly Butterfly is, because it clearly isn't just a, a, a sculpture, a, a process of engaging with a, a Cessna aircraft. It's not only a film, and obviously it's not only the, the, the performance, performance, I guess, because you were watched, uh, observed in the unfurling. Uh, it's all three things, and so it, it's all, you know instantly a, a hybrid work, a multidisciplinary work. But what do you think of it as, and... and given how you described it came at a significant time for you in, in you not wanting to sort of repeat yourself if you like it presumably was a kind of before and after moment for you in all sorts of ways yeah I mean I think going back to this idea of sort of trying to reinvent myself um, I was trying to look at how forms became recognizable as objects um, through processes and specifically, I remember at that time looking at Duchamp's standard stoppages where he'd take a piece of string and drop the piece of string on the floor and the shape the string made became a template cut from wood. And I was fascinated by how very mm. deliberate an action became a process, became a product. Mm. And I think that really, in the sense of trying to reinvent myself, I used the invitation from Jules to try and do that in a very physical way not knowing an end result but then discovering an end result that ended up in a two-dimensional form so we went from a three-dimensional form to a, a, a compressed mass to a process to a two-dimensional image in light on a, on a flat screen. Yeah. So there were all these transformations taking place for me to try and discover a future, you know, albeit maybe a, a, a programmed future for a couple of years, a couple of months, a couple of years to see what I could do with this information. But this was the experiment, I suppose. And one was putting oneself on the line. You know, Jules was being very brave and finding money to sort of take on this thing. But I didn't even know what the end result was going to be. I hadn't actually planned it to be a film. All I knew we were going to do was sort of crush this thing and pull it out again. So. To, to sort of try and sort of bring reason to it. I think one's got to look at it as just about being and doing and the idea of sort of uh, talking about time and change. Mm. 
No, that's that's tremendous. I mean, it, it does obviously bring us back, you know, in, in an interesting way to your performance work, your live work with with Bo Gamelan Ensemble, with 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 Anne and Paul, and the idea again that that there is no real division, I guess, when one is fully involved and, and immersed in the act of making between being in the world and a, a so-called artistic practice that, for most artists, you know, is 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 described as being somehow separate from their life. And I, I like that idea that you didn't know where you were going until you actually got there. And, and that obviously Jules could accommodate that. Now, you took that idea of, of kind of, you know, explicit process forward just a, a couple of years later when you were commissioned for Liverpool to make Turning the Place Over, mm. where, you, where you literally you know t- made a building again become procedural you you uh you you cut a huge hole in the side of a building and actually the the the, the space of that of that hole was then filled with a with a mechanical shifting of the of the wall if you like of the of, of the building itself in a in a timed process do you think that a, a piece like that sort of came directly out of your experience of process with butterfly I think it did. I think what was happening is through the experience of Bo Gamelan Ensemble and the very fact I was making site-specific work. So at the end of the duration of the exhibition, let's say, uh, the work was, it was very difficult to take the work and go and store it. Often, quite often my work was dismantled and lost and I would just keep the plans in order to recreate should I need to in the future. So what was beginning to become... Mm-hmm questionable was me as an object maker I was beginning to realize more and more I seemed to be building events and Mm -hmm. it was making me understand that everything in the world around me was an event even architecture that we're an event that the the people we know are an event the things we touch and have around us are events in that they're not permanent they're not fixed um they have a duration. We lose things, we drop things, we break things, and things decay. Architecture, our landscape, and our urban environment is changing all the time. We see photographs from 100 years ago, the skyline, and we look now. We change things in our houses. Our our relationship to people can be temporary. Everything seemed to me to be about event, and I wanted to make that part of my sculptural process. And to make that a significant statement, I chose to turn the facade of a building to say, you know, like this building is derelict and forlorn, but the through the power of art, through the power of sculpture, I can make people come and look at this thing, this written off forlorn forgotten thing like the broken aeroplane in the field where I found it. And in the same way, um, through the power of art, one can make an audience come along and recognise that the, through the act of transformation... That's a powerful thing. But at the same time, the architecture, in the instance of the turning the place over in Liverpool, the architecture is a fragile thing. It's not a permanent thing. Bricks and steel are only there until you decide to crumble them down or break them down with machinery and flatten the ground and then rebuild once more. So it was about a sort of impermanence, I suppose. No, that is really fascinating. And, and again, turning on its head, just as you kind of turned the building inside out, the idea that sculpture, which we take to be, you know, the, 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 the material expression of a certain kind of permanence is absolutely not the case, even in, uh, you know, the shorter term, let alone the longer term of, 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 uh, of material breaking down and so on. So that's a real, um, uh, you know, huge insight, I think, and, and obviously a huge excitement for audiences to encounter. Now, about 10 years later, uh, you were commissioned 
to, uh, to make uh, and install Slipstream in the Terminal 2 building at Heath Road. Now, this is a vast public sculpture, certainly huge by um, indoor uh, public sculptural uh, measure. And I wonder if some of the uh, processes that you've described in the early 2000s um, led into that. I mean, of course, in, in the development of, of your uh, creative vocation, it would have done. But I wonder what the what the freedom to manoeuvre was in such a place like that. And I just I should say now, I'm not expecting you to reveal, you know, uh, professional conversations that remain discreet. But um, <laughs> I, I, just wondering really about about, you know, how much room to manoeuvre such a commission has, as opposed to, say, the Liverpool Biennial or the Wapping Project, where pretty much anything goes. Yeah. Well, the the thing about most of these things that I go uh, that I do is that there is always hidden agendas. You know, I mean, there's structural daring and people say, oh, my God, you know, what if that fell on someone's head? Well, it's not going to fall on someone's head because one goes through the many actions with um, engineers mm. and fabricators to make sure things stand up in the world. And they're not going to topple and fall on someone's head. So there's that sort of thing. The other thing, of course, is. You know, you, you, uh, Gareth, you mentioned scale there, you know, the enormous slipstream. I mean, people say to me, you know, God, these things are massive. And I think scale is relevant to sight. And mm-hmm. you know, the, the classic example of that is that slipstream is half the length I originally designed it because originally the commission allowed for the piece of work to sit in space on 11 columns. Well, Slipstream only uses four of the 11 columns of that space in Terminal 2. So in a way, one is governed by um, an aesthetic decision, you know, but at the same time, you're given space and you have to say, okay, I think it needs to be this size, not that size. And Mm -hmm. what is the budget? So again, that sort of governs what you can get away with. And I suppose to a degree, bureaucracy. I mean, there were certain things that I had to change in the aesthetics of Slipstream only to do with certain subjects like wayfinding. If Mm -hmm. a part of the sculpture actually got in the way of the public being able to find the entrance or the exit to the space (laughs) that the, 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 the sculpture occupied, one had to pull a compromise. And in a lot of these very, very big works, it's really where the artist decides to meet the decision of compromise. You know, do you meet up at the other end or do you meet close to where the artist wants to be and you tend to hover around the middle <laughs> as yes. it were but um yes of course one is always incredibly sensitive when being offered a space i mean i was very sensitive to um uh, the whopping project space i mean it was it was one of those situations where jules said you can do whatever you want and i had a history of tampering with architecture and undoing architecture not as a vandal but as a sensitively choreographed act which would then be uh, mended or replaced or put back. And an example of that might be the window at Matt's gallery that was brought into the gallery. Um, mm. So in this situation, I, I was dreading the fact that she might think I'd be pulling the place apart. But in fact, we didn't. You know, we sensitively tethered to all the pipes and steel that was in the building, knowing full well that those columns and the other bits of steel in the space could take the the amount of pull we needed when we were pulling the wings, etc., out from the crushed mass. (laughs) 
No, that's that's tremendous. I mean, just two things really that come out of that in relation to the scale of the work. I think it's it obviously vital for us to know that you know originally it was going to be, you know, two and a half times as long perhaps um, if all the columns had been used. I wonder over over the course of your you know your career to date how the relationship with engineers has 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 changed because of course. In those earlier works, you were very much making work in the studio. The Cessna was, you know, you were involving others. It was very much hands-on. You get to a project like Slipstream, and, and perhaps even in, in Liverpool, there's an engineering involvement that, that requires you to bring in others. And and I wonder what that, um, how you see that creative tension in terms of that that collaborative process, because some things require a material um, innovation that perhaps you know you don't have immediate access to at the beginning. Absolutely. I mean, the first thing to say, I suppose, is I've always used the word we when I've been describing my yes, work. I, exactly. I, in, in most interviews, you might hear me say, well, what we did next was and then we. And so the plural is very necessary because having developed a reputation, not just as, a, as an ob- object maker, but more as a uh, large scale installation, let's call it public art, um, mm. an installation builder. Um, when you are building large scale, obviously, depending on, on the type of structure and if there's structural daring, you do have to resort to talking to the experts just to make sure that your work's going to stand up in the world and not cause injury, uh, do what it's intended to do, have a lasting effect and therefore be able to stand in that sort of situation. So the engineers are allies. They, I go to them to get information. And the, the, the sort of, I suppose, the process of that, to make it clear, would be, I mean, I'm old-fashioned and a formalist in a sense. I still work with many, many three-dimensional models made from card, metal, steel sheet, whatever, uh, bits of wood, balsa wood, uh, paper. And I will go along to the engineers, uh, usually Price and Myers, who are based in London, who have done a lot of my works with me, and I will sit down with them and speak about what it is I want to do. And it's with that model they can see absolutely clearly what it is. And I still enjoy making models. And I suppose really because once upon a time, Robert Myers, before he retired, once said to me while he was tampering with one of my models, he said, Richard, you really must start learning CAD. It'll be so much easier for you. And I said, ah, Robert, with these models, when I bring them in, we're all touching them and drawing on them and cutting them. They're very democratic. We share these things. Once you're on a screen, you're lost. It's really fascinating to hear how you, how you work with others. And, and just as we sadly draw to a close, I'd like to ask you about your two commissions uh, last year in 2019, of course, a, a year where things were possible in a way that they uh, haven't been in, in our strange and unsettling 2020 to date. But two works that really do speak, it seems to me, in a way to uh, to the lineage that Butterfly set in motion, perhaps. One, of course, is Huang Pu Hold uh, on the Shanghai waterfront uh, that seems very much a kind of sister 
uh, if you like, to Butterfly, where instead of a light uh, aircraft being repurposed and, and re, uh, repositioned, should we say, uh, it is a shipwreck that finds its way uh, onto the waterside. And this, of course, uh, ran alongside your uh, installation, the second outing, uh, for Hang On A Minute, lads, I've got a great idea. This, this time it was in Turin in 2019, obviously originally uh, in the Delaware Pavilion in Becks Hill, where you homage uh, the great closing sequence of uh, the wonderful film The Italian Job and and suspend uh, a, a coach uh, on the edge of a roof. Uh, so it would be great if we could just think uh, together a little bit, Richard, about, about how these two works have, have kind of come, if you like, from, from, from the uh, idea that Butterfly perhaps initiated. Well, uh, I mean, I've always been interested in industrial processes and I have a vocabulary, uh, a drawn vocabulary of proposals and ideas which sit on the back burner. Whenever I get an opportunity where uh, there's a possibility for one of those pieces to be pulled out from the back catalogue, let's say, mm. and reworked, I'll, I'll, I'll drag it out and have a look at it before I go off to site. And Fortunately, I was invited by a dear friend of mine who runs the Art Front Gallery in Japan, in Tokyo, Fram Kitagawa. He's done a lot of work with governments around the world, rejuvenating areas, spaces, land, etc., using artists in all sorts of ways. And in this situation, he was given a rather forlorn setting just outside of Shanghai, which was all up for redevelopment and has now been redeveloped, one of which was a a five or 10 kilometer walk that links one up into the Bund in Shanghai. And they wanted in this landscape space works that in some way tried to evoke and talk about the river that runs through Shanghai. And the section of river, the tributary that runs into that other river is called the Huangpu and Huangpu. And I was thinking about the process of coring as an industrial process i've used it once before at the serpentine gallery uh before it went through major upheaval and redevelopment and of course that meant one could do what one wanted to do without disrupting the architecture too much because it was all up for renewal and in this situation there and we found a ship in a shipyard in the shanghai shipyard that was um unfit for any purpose other than to be sort of scrapped and I said well could we core this ship could we take circular sections from all parts of this uh, so we sample moments and then these were attached to the ends of pipes so they became sort of ship capsules as it were where you took the details of the hull the deck the the details on the deck the details on the superstructure bits of window bits of the mast mooring bollards hulls pit where it's been patched bits of the propeller and all these things culminated on the end of these tubes and then these were in turn stacked up as if they were cargo ready for shipment on the river and they were talking about a, a vessel that had been used as a tugboat that had that had a history on that that uh, stretch of the water well, I mean, thank you so much indeed for sharing uh, these thoughts on Butterfly and other works with us, Richard. I think what, what it really shows is, 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 you know, this extraordinary potential under the right artistic imagination to see the possible within, within the world as we find it, within the material world, within the architectural spaces we inhabit, and with the larger spaces of the world. And I'm constantly energised by the surprise and wonder that you bring to the process of, of making from planning through to delivery, but also 
the surprise and wonder that you kind of instill in, in us as viewers and those who encounter the work. I think I, I'm really struck by the idea that you see what exists, things that exist, the material objects of the world as you've described, and you see what they might be. And I think it's that incredible tension between the actual and the imagined that gives your work such a, an incredible force. I'm delighted that um, the Whopping Project, of course, have made the um, the film footage of Butterfly available. It's on the Vimeo pages uh, of the Whopping Project. So please, if you haven't seen the work, do find uh, the film there. Please track down uh, Richard's own website, of course, richardwilsonsculptor.com, and also the Whopping Project's own website, thewhoppingproject.org, where you'll find full details of all the commissions and the ongoing podcast series. But it just remains for me now to thank you so much indeed for sharing with us all your thoughts, ideas, and memories, Richard Wilson. Thank, well, thank you very much, Gareth. I'll, I'll just end on one point to say, um, I suppose really, if you dig deep down, um, what really is a driving force was a sent another sentence I found in a, in a in a sketchbook only too recently, which was something about uh, do what I don't know, and I think really there's a subtext in everything you look at on that website and, and live works that you'll see in galleries in the future. You know what I'm attempting to do is to try and do things that I don't know about, as opposed to doing things which I think I know fully well. <laughs> A wonderful way to end. Thank you very much indeed, Richard Wilson. Thank you very much. I do hope you can join me in the next edition of Pass Forward, The Whopping Project 20, where I will be in conversation with the remarkable writer, curator and activist So Meyer. So wrote three distinctive and extraordinary poems for the launch of The Whopping Project commissions uh, in the publication Transition, Transformation and Transience. They will be read for us in the edition by Robert Whitelock. I do hope you can join us then. Thank you very much indeed for listening and goodbye.